Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with another WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, the Silver King is back once again to talk all things in the world of WWE. We are going to have a full breakdown from Raw on Monday, the fallout from Hell in a Cell, and the beginning of the build to Money in the Bank, the first pay-per-view with fans returning since February 2020. I'm extremely excited for this pay-per-view, extremely excited to talk to you about WWE today, but unfortunately, the Silver King will be riding solo on today's show. Vintage Chris Vanini had a bunch of personal and professional obligations over the last day, so he wasn't able to watch Raw Live. He had some stuff he had to do Tuesday during our normal taping time. So the Silver King will be operating as a one-man band. Shout out to Heath Slater just for today only. We will have Chris back next week and every WWE episode going forward, and he may be making some special appearances on our AEW episodes as well, maybe just to make up a little bit for missing today. But nevertheless, the Silver King is here. I'm going to take you the entire way. And we have a loaded show because I'm not just going to talk about Raw, not just about the fallout from Hell in a Cell, looking ahead to Money in the Bank, but there's a lot of stuff that happened on SmackDown that we need to discuss as well. The return of our brand new segment, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, is on deck today. And I even got a chance to catch up on a couple A&E biographies from WWE superstars that we've not had a chance to talk about. So we will break those down at the end of today's show as well. But you guys know, here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we get into this show by taking care of business. And that business begins with a reminder about what this show is all about. It's all about the five. It is all about the five. That means heading on over to Apple Podcasts, giving us five-star ratings, leaving reviews to let people know how much you love this show. It also means heading on over to Twitter and giving us a follow at Getting Overcast. We just crossed the 900 follower mark. That's awesome. I want to hit 1,000 before SummerSlam. If we can do that, it would be absolutely incredible. So please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That's where you can send in DM questions for the show. We'll read them on air, although I didn't get any today that really fit within the show. You can also participate in pre and post show polls and live audio special shows we do only on Twitter spaces. So do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and do not forget to leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So let's get into today's show. Now I'm gonna just delay the main event briefly because I wanted to give you some overall thoughts about Raw on Monday and the early build to Money in the Bank. Because WWE's insistence on booking half of the Money in the Bank pay-per-view the day after Hell in a Cell can hardly be explained in my opinion other than perhaps it being done purely to have four weeks to promote the pay-per-view card for ticket sales purposes. Other than that, I don't really see any justification why it was necessary to book two title matches and basically half of both Money in the Bank matches one week into the build when you're going to have three more Raws left, including the go-home show, before the pay-per-view. 
Because the result of that now is over the next few weeks on Raw, we're mostly going to get the Money in the Bank qualifiers and entrants competing against each other in singles matches and tag team matches that are going to get repetitive when you otherwise could have had qualifying matches lasting more than one week. But right now coming out of Raw, we basically, like I said, have half of this card made. And I'm not saying that you can't start booking the pay-per-view right away because we certainly hate when they wait until the week before the show to announce matches. But one week to breathe coming out of Hell in a Cell, it would have been nice. You want to announce one rematch, start filling out Money in the Bank with two qualifiers for the men and two qualifiers for the women. That's cool. That totally works for me. But the WWE title match could have easily been held one more week. And the Money in the Bank field, you don't need to blow your load. Hey now, for lack of a better phrase, setting seven of eight qualifiers up for the match. It's 90% of the raw field on just one week of television when you have so much time left. This could be accomplished in a number of ways. Namely, like I said, holding off at least one men's match, not forcing the women to qualify as pairs in tag team matches, which I found to be for no good reason whatsoever. And right there, you're almost doubling your matches and you're giving people reasons to tune into Raw next week, the following week, and then on the go-home show. Because right now, as it stands, outside of the last chance qualifier that we're going to get next week on Raw, there's literally no reason to watch Raw next week based on Monday's results. There's no mid-card feud that seems to be happening. There is a tag team feud, but there's no telling when that title match is going to be. And the two main feuds for the WWE Championship and the Raw Women's Championship are already set for the pay-per-view along with 90% of the Money in the Bank field from that side. So I find that to be especially unfortunate because Monday, with the announced matches and stuff, I was really pessimistic going into Raw. And it turned out to maybe be, and I think maybe can probably get thrown out the window, the best Raw of 2021. And that's without a qualifier. It's funny what happens when you mostly stop running rematches and focus on fresh matches and putting new people into big spots. I wish all of them weren't surprise upset wins because that really speaks to the poor booking of most of the winners. The fact that them winning a match to qualify is a surprise shouldn't really be the case. But giving talented mid-card wrestlers opportunities is exactly what Money in the Bank should be about. You guys know I say it all the time. Money in the Bank is not about Brock Lesnar winning. It's not about a joke champion like Otis. It's about taking someone like a Ricochet, like a Big E, and elevating them into a main event opportunity. Not that they wouldn't otherwise get, but maybe that wouldn't come for six months or a year. It gives someone something to hold on to that makes them a big deal and makes them storyline relevant, even when they're not in title pictures. And WWE definitely accomplished that with their qualifiers on Monday night. Really, I think there was only one segment on the three-hour Raw that I actively hated. Everything else ranged from great to good to perfectly fine and acceptable. There was really nothing else that I went crazy about in terms of hating except one segment. And going into a show where you know they're going to announce that someone's character name is Dewdrop and seeing a pairing of Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross who were at odds 
and not friends anymore in a tag team qualifier for Money in the Bank. Going into the show, I'm thinking it's about to be a disaster. And somehow it wasn't. So with that prelude out of the way, let's get the show started and slide into the main event. And I gotta say, folks, the main event is gonna take up most of this show because really, Money in the Bank is about the Money in the Bank matches. So we're gonna talk about the big main event storyline. We're gonna talk about the Money in the Bank matches. And then we will move on to our new segment that debuted last week. To positive reviews, I still want you guys to kind of tweet me, DM me, let me know what you think about the new segment. Uh, So I get a little bit more feedback, know if we should continue it. But so far, the people that responded seem to like it. Anyway, we're not there yet. We're in the main event. And Raw started with New Day interrupting Bobby Lashley, who was celebrating in the VIP lounge in the middle of the ring. The champion and MVP were set to toast champagne when New Day threw literal toast in the ring. MVP said their antics prove his point they're clowns and not main eventers. Kofi Kingston asked Lashley whether his entourage would be there for him when he eventually loses the WWE title, just like all of his friends and family are for Kofi, especially when he lost the title. Lashley cut, I thought, a pretty strong promo on Kofi being lower on the hierarchy than him. And then Kofi showed footage of him beating Lashley last month. 11 minutes into the first show after Hell in a Cell, Kofi challenged him for the WWE Championship and Lashley accepted. So we had the main event or co-main event of Money in the Bank 11 minutes into the first Raw after Hell in a Cell. That's what I'm talking about, where things could have been delayed. There was then a sloppy moment where they ended up challenging Xavier Woods. I'm not sure if the plan was that Xavier had to earn the title shot for Kofi, but they announced the Money in the Bank main event match before the main event of Raw. So it didn't seem like that was the case. I just think Lashley lost himself, lost his place a little bit in the promo. Woods ended up cutting a pretty great promo. He even snuck in a King of the Ring reference before agreeing to the match in the main event of Raw, as long as it's inside Hell in a Cell, which opened the show hanging over the ring. So you knew that we were gonna get a match. That was really weird. Lashley accepted it. Now we knew Lashley and Kofi was coming and we discussed it on here for weeks. So it's gonna be no surprise that it's happening. But holy shit, man, have they devalued Hell in a Cell as a match? We've now had four Hell in a Cell matches in four days, with two of them having absolutely no storyline reason whatsoever for being inside the structure. This is supposed to be a special stipulation to blow off a blood feud, not a normal course of action like a street fight or false count anywhere. I have no proof of this, but I would bet really good money that the Lashley Woods Hell in a Cell booking was a make good to USA Network, which was reportedly angry that Roman Reigns and Rey Mysterio was put on SmackDown for Fox. Overall, it was simultaneously a strange but good opening segment that led to a strange but good main event match. So let's get to the match itself. Lashley punched a chair into Woods' face. He missed a spear into the ring post. Woods hit some kendo sticks. Woods then caught Lashley with a really cool Canadian Destroyer style face buster for a near fall. Woods then hit a tightrope elbow drop more than two thirds of the way across the ring onto Lashley through a table, but only got a 2.5 count. Lashley drove Woods into a chair, speared him and won with the hurt lock to end what I have to say was a really damn good main event match. I didn't grade it, but I mean, if I did, it probably would have been 
now that I'm doing this live, I guess 3.5 stars and a B, maybe 3.75 stars. I mean, it was a pretty damn good main event match. I'm going to go with 3.75 stars and a B plus. I enjoyed the absolute hell out of it. MVP then ran into the cell when the door opened and he locked Kofi Kingston out as Lashley reapplied the hurt lock to Woods with Kofi screaming like through the cage as Raw went off the air. I thought Woods did himself proud and he showed out in a major way in this match. Lashley was able to look dominant both in the match and in the finish to Raw, which really amped up the title match for Money in the Bank. It almost seemed like a go-home segment. That's how good it was. Really, everything about this storyline from the opening segment to the main event match was strong. I loved the idea that it opened and closed the show and you didn't get too much. I think you saw Bobby Lashley like backstage one time during the course of the show, but that was really it. And it's very different from what they do on SmackDown where Roman Reigns and his family, it's not just the opening and closing segment many weeks, but you see them four or five times throughout the show and they're taking 45 minutes to an hour. This got plenty of time. But at the same time, it wasn't an overabundance focusing on just one storyline because to their credit, Raw was packed with good matches. Now, I I criticized it because I thought they should have spaced them out a little bit. But for a single three-hour show, Raw was pretty damn good. So everything about, like I said, the opening segment, main event, I thought was strong. It was one of the best endings to Raw that we've gotten in a long time. And it has me wanting to tune in next week to at least see what's going to happen in this feud, even though there's really not much of a place for it to go unless they're going to add a stipulation to the match, which I really don't see, given the fact there's already going to be two Money in the Bank matches on this card. Now, the second part of our main event is all the Money in the Bank qualifiers, which again, took up the vast majority of Raw. So let's start with the men, AJ Styles and Ricochet. They had the first match. Styles and Omas antagonized the Viking Raiders backstage with Styles slapping a turkey leg out of Ivar's hands. Ricochet also cut a pretty solid taped promo about his fall from grace after losing the WWE title opportunity against Brock Lesnar. And again, I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, Ricochet can cut taped promos. It's live in front of a mic where he struggles, especially in front of fans. This worked. This is how you present Ricochet. I I loved what they did here. Rick hit a double rolling suplex for a near fall. He overcame a Pele kick, calf crusher, and neck breaker onto Styles' knee. When AJ went for the phenomenal forearm, the Raiders came down to attack Omas. They dodged Omas's charge, and Omas ran through a barricade in a really sick spot. This distracted AJ, and Ricochet countered a phenomenal forearm midair with the recoil for the win. This was a really good piece of booking. Styles had an excuse to lose, but Ricochet still got over clean and strong with one of his signature moves in a clear key moment. It was not a roll-up finish. He doesn't need that help or he shouldn't ever get that help to beat The Miz or John Morrison or something. But someone on Styles' level who's a current title holder, I'm fine with Ricochet getting that distraction for the win. The camera also lingered on his celebration after the match. And I think a crowd would have come unglued for Ricochet upsetting Styles in that way. And of course, Ricochet in the Money in the Bank ladder match is going to be exceptional. He will be the MVP of that entire match. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Peacock or the WWE Network and watch the ladder match from NXT TakeOver New Orleans. I was right in front of it, like 10 rows from the ring. 
Ricochet in a ladder match is going to be incredible. Or as someone else might say, Now, WWE really leaned into RK-Bro on this edition of Raw, giving them basically four segments, it was really three, together and individually over the course of the three-hour program. And that, by the way, is a very good thing. Riddle rode up to Randy Orton backstage, excited that they were both in Money in the Bank qualifiers, and he went off about using the briefcase to hide his stash of Whoppers. Orton yelled to get to the point and Riddle asks for some pointers uh, in terms of his match and Money in the Bank. Orton said just to stay out of his way. Riddle then said it would be awesome if they could both compete in Money in the Bank. And Orton said, well, it would be awesome, just not for Riddle. Typically good stuff between both of them. So the first match was Randy Orton against John Morrison. This match happened one segment after a Rhea Ripley-Charlotte Flair confrontation that we're gonna talk about later. But the match began with Orton banging Morrison's head into the announce table lid without a disqualification being called. And that's how dumb it was to call a DQ on that during Hell in a Cell. Now, I will say, I did get a tweet during Raw on Monday that tried to explain the difference in why it was a DQ on Hell in a Cell and why it was not a DQ on Raw. So I will allow this to be, you know, I'm going to read it and I'll allow you guys to think about it. And it came in from Danny at Daniel Garms, G-A-R-M-S on Twitter. He said, I could be wrong, but I think the entire rule is that someone can't hit an opponent with an object, but can slam them into it. You can throw them into the steps, but can't pick up the steps and hit an opponent with them, for example. And I got to give Danny credit because I think from a kayfabe standpoint, He's 100% right. It's just that I believe there's something different in the way that it's perceived when you're dealing with those things in the ringside area. Yeah, I do think picking up steel steps, removing them from the other step, because you usually pick up the top one off the bottom one, and then directly ramming it into someone's head is a very obvious use of weapon. But when you're talking about the tabletop from the table, and you're only really flinging it upwards and it's still somewhat attached to the table, are you still using it as a weapon to your point, Danny? Yes, you are. So you make a good point. And from a kayfabe standpoint, I think you're 100% right on that that's the explanation. But it still doesn't come off as something that makes sense, given that they're not explaining that on commentary. You didn't have Jimmy Smith or Byron Saxon or Corey Graves say, Well, you can't use a table in that way. You can't use it as a weapon like that, even though you can put people through it. So is it something that we as the audience should know? Maybe, but I don't think you can assume the audience knows that. And I certainly did it and Chris didn't. And most of the people complaining about it online weren't thinking in that way. And if it's not obvious in that way, that means it's a bad finish. And if you're finishing a title match at a pay-per-view that way, it doesn't make it suddenly an okay or good finish. I know you're not saying that, Danny. I'm just saying it doesn't help. The finish still sucked, even if it in kayfabe to you. And now that you explained it to me, it does make sense. And we will talk a little bit later when we get to Rhea Ripley and Charlotte Flair, why it was even more of a piece of shit booking. But back to Randy Orton and John Morrison. 
Miz distracted Orton with the dripstick, which is incredible to say, uh, when he was setting up for the RKO. Morrison nearly rolled him up, but Riddle came down with his scooter to chase Miz away. Orton got distracted seeing Riddle riding around the ring on the scooter. Morrison hung him up on the top rope and then hit Starship Pain for the upset win. And again, thank the Lord, we didn't get a roll up. They actually allowed Morrison to hit his finisher and win. They allowed Ricochet to hit a signature move, the recoil, and win. That's what we want. Now, this was just a fine match. The better booking probably would have been Riddle successfully evening the odds and Orton winning the match. Because yes, I would prefer non-main eventers in Money in the Bank, but it's an easy exception to make to get both of RK Bro in there. And the idea of them working together in the match, but also having to be at odds and fight each other is better than just Orton being angry and jealous at Riddle, which is basically what we have right now. Though Orton is getting a second chance next week. Now let's move on to the second match here. Drew McIntyre versus Riddle. So McIntyre backstage quoted Winston Churchill. And I just, folks... I don't get what it is with this shit each week. I don't need McIntyre to be a scripted, learned scholar. I just want him to be a cool baby face like he used to be. But other than that, uh, he was talking to Pearson DeVille and nothing really came of it. They were just making sure he was okay health-wise to compete in the match. He said he was, even though he was banged up, but whatever. Now getting into the match, holy crap. This match was all about one thing, and I'm glad WWE did it. Because there was beef flying in that ring between Drew McIntyre and Riddle. McIntyre sold his injured ribs and back the entire match, especially after a Riddle suplex toss at ringside. Coming back from commercial, they aired promotion for the main event by lighting up Hell in a Cell with strobe lights, while the match was still happening underneath, I thought that was so strange and weird from a production standpoint. Like, I have no idea why they would do that. McIntyre gave Riddle a toss suplex, then stupidly a kip up, hurting his injured back. Then sitting on the top rope, McIntyre German suplexed Riddle off of it in a huge spot. Orton came out on stage to watch Riddle and Riddle smiled knowing he was there. Riddle countered an avalanche white noise into a powerbomb and hit a V-trigger for a near fall. McIntyre then hit a Mishinoku driver for a near fall. Riddle caught Drew flying off the ropes into a triangle. McIntyre countered a backslide into a Future Shock DDT for another near fall. Riddle collapsed when McIntyre aimed for a Claymore. They then countered each other, and Riddle hit a rain trigger. He missed a floating bro and hurt his knee, but then he countered a Claymore into a bro mission. McIntyre powered out of it. Riddle hit another V-trigger. McIntyre came back with a Glasgow kiss, and then Riddle ended up on his shoulders, rolling down and over him in a pinning combination for the upset win. Riddle was super pumped and scooted up the ramp to fist bump Orton, who he begged not to leave him hanging. He really wanted a fist bump. Orton ultimately did not comply and acted kind of like he was the little brother to Orton's big brother. He just really wanted his approval. Orton just stared. He was still pissed about his loss earlier. He refused to smile or budge an inch. This was an incredible match. Easily the match of the night. An early TV match of the week leader. And I think one of the better TV matches that we've had 
all year to this point. It was pay-per-view quality, better mo- than most matches we got on Hell in a Cell. It just felt like an even bigger deal than it was as a Money in the Bank qualifier. And I gave maybe erroneously a couple 4.5 star and 4 star grades to the men's singles matches at Money in the Bank, but this was better than both of them. So I'm going with 4.5 stars and an A because I was enthralled the entire time. And once they came back from commercial break, this was a banger all the way to the finish, a great TV match. These guys should be fighting for the WWE or Universal Championship at some point, hopefully sooner than later. It was also strong booking because McIntyre had a clear out with his injuries, losing clean after a tremendous match to a newer guy, WWE needs to be building for the future. There was no reason for McIntyre to be in Money in the Bank anyway. I know he gets a second chance. Hopefully he doesn't get in. He needs to be away from the title picture for a good while after a fantastic year. One more thing on Riddle. This guy is crushing it. I don't think he's had a single bad match since joining the main roster. He's completely found his character and is doing such a great job. And watch Raw Talk this week for more greatness from Riddle because Matt Riddle has it. And I hope they bring back the name Matt. Now, before we move on to the women, there was another interesting Money in the Bank segment. We had Jinder Mahal, Jeff Hardy, Cedric Alexander, and Sheamus all telling Adam Pearce and Sonya Deville they deserved Money in the Bank qualifying matches. But Pierce smartly noted that Sheamus's nose was supposed to be broken, so he ran away so as not to defend United States Championship. Hardy also told Alexander, what case do you have? I've beaten you two weeks in a row. That was smart as well. Continuity. Good shit. Uh, Pierce and DeVille said the qualifying matches were final, though, and none of those guys could get an opportunity. Mahal got really pissed, talked down to Pierce, said he should be considered if something was to happen to one of the qualifiers. Now, notably missing from this entire thing were Damian Priest and Humberto Carrillo, both of whom who have been successful recently. In fact, Priest, who's 11-1 on the main roster and undefeated in non-handicap matches, he should just be granted a free pass to Money in the Bank, if we're being honest. He's a total no-brainer. And his absence from the booking was a little bit strange. Now, he is supposedly recovering from a back injury, but he's supposed to be returning any week now. So again, it's a good reason to not book every single Money in the Bank qualifying match so he could potentially get a spot. Now, since he's coming back from a back injury, if they want to be careful, okay, maybe a ladder match ain't it. So maybe they'll vault him into becoming Sheamus' number one contender for the United States Championship, like we've been expecting. Or maybe they bring him back. He just gets a bunch of easy wins against lower card opponents until Money in the Bank is done. One way or another, I hope they work and factor Damian Priest into their booking more once he's able to return. And obviously there's more men's singles too. Later in the show, we saw Jackson Riker hitting himself with a strap when Mansoor walked up, asked what he was doing and asked for advice for some reason. I have no idea why Mansoor was asking Jackson Riker for advice. Riker told him to never let your enemy escape and explained he would be fighting Elias next week in a strap match. So there's nowhere to run or hide. So a shred of credit, even though I hate the the purposeful countout finishes, they're clearly going to this match. It was booked for a reason. Okay, we're getting a strap match. Do I want to see a strap match between Riker and Elias? No, I do not. Mustafa Ali told Mansoor he's still asking the wrong questions to the wrong people. 
and that the chance to qualify for money in the bank was stolen from both of them. And I actually think it was a halfway decent interaction between all three guys. And the promo work by all of them was pretty solid. So there was really nothing to hate here. But now next week for the final Money in the Bank spot, we're getting a second chance qualifying match with Styles, McIntyre, and Orton. And I usually enjoy second chance matches, but not when there's legitimately a handful of other dudes who should be getting opportunities in kayfabe. Why can't we get Priest against Ali or Carrillo against Mahal? I expect Mahal will either cost McIntyre the match or perhaps even take his spot with a backstage attack or something like that because there is a natural storyline between the two. I really don't want Styles in the match because he's a tag team champion. And again, it really should be Priest in there. Orton would be acceptable because of the RK bro stuff we were talking about earlier. So we will see what happens. But all in all, we left Raw with Ricochet, Riddle, and John Morrison as the first three Money in the Bank entrants. And that is legitimately fresh and different for WWE. As for the SmackDown side, just previewing ahead to Friday, and of course, we'll talk about it next week, looking ahead at who I'd like to see inside Money in the Bank from SmackDown, Big E undoubtedly, Sami Zayn, and then you know what? Cesaro and Rollins, adding them, that'd be a good four, especially if you either want to give them one more match on SmackDown, or if you really desperately want to stretch Cesaro and Rollins to SummerSlam for a blow-off match, then Money in the Bank having them compete and cost each other the briefcase, that's a good way to continue that storyline, even though it really should be over already. So that's the men's stuff. Let's move over to the women. And I got to be honest with you guys, I had an entire rant ready to go for this show in my head about Dewdrop and how WWE named someone after a bit of water on a blade of grass and how Slapjack could now take a back seat, T-Bar could be forgotten about, Shorty G was fun to complain about, and the Viking experience was off the hook because Dewdrop takes the cake and makes Piper Nevin dead on arrival in WWE on the main roster. Because could you really imagine a world in which Greg Hamilton would say on the mic, and new Raw Women's Champion, Dewdrop? Of course not. You would never hear that. I was also going to go into how someone was actually employed and earning money from WWE to being creative and actually come up with this name and pitch it before it got approved. And I was wondering, hey, what are the other options that didn't get approved? Wave crash, mudslide, mist spray. I think it would have been a funny rant if I was able to do it. But somehow, somehow, someway, WWE may have potentially swerved all of us and me in particular. Because we got a tag team match, Asuka and Naomi against Eva Marie and her partner that was going to result in Money in the Bank qualification for the winning team. Backstage, Eva said that she didn't wrestle last week because she caught a cold when she got her nails done. Her protege was about to say her name when she was asked by the interviewer. And you could see her mouthing Piper when Eva interrupted, looked her up and down and said, she's Dewdrop. And Piper looked disappointed by that, almost resentful. So it appears as if this is an intentionally awful name that we're supposed to not like, which played out a bit later in the show. And we'll draw some parallels with the name in a little bit. So we got the match. 
Eva Marie immediately tagged out, jumped off the apron. Dewdrop, I can't believe I'm saying the name like it's real, was wrestling handicap, but did hit a cannonball into the corner with Naomi laid out and Dewdrop about to finish her. Eva tagged herself in. Dewdrop got angry because she was wrestling and didn't need the tag and jumped off the apron, deciding not to let Eva tag back in when, back out, I'm sorry, when she was ready to tag out. And then Naomi rolled up Eva Marie for the win. Now, this was actually decently interesting. If you put aside for a second, the fact that they couldn't let Naomi, a legitimate wrestler and former WWE women's champion, hit a finisher on Eva Marie and required another fricking roll-up in a women's match. Putting that aside, Eva Marie stared at Dewdrop in disbelief after the match, so it seems like the angle is that Dewdrop is a protege, but refuses to be treated like shit. And that's actually not that bad as long as the name is temporary. If WWE did this just to rile up the IWC, I mean, credit where it's due because it definitely worked. However, given all of those terrible superstar names I mentioned earlier, you cannot blame hardcore fans for being conditioned to believe that this was a purposeful name and a permanent name. And by the way, we still don't know that it's not permanent because do not forget WWE A, went through the effort to trademark the name and B, Baron Corbin called Chad Gable Shorty G as an insult on SmackDown over a year ago before Gable took on the moniker on purpose and put it on himself. So there's no telling how this is gonna play out exactly, but there's at least a possibility that it won't be what we thought and that Piper Nevin will not be saddled for all eternity with Dewdrop as a gimmick, just like T-Bar and Shorty G and Slapjack and all this other bullshit that we've gotten recently. So because there seems to be immediate angst and resentfulness in this pairing of Eva Marie and Dewdrop, at least temporarily, I'm gonna hold off on criticism because they told the story and it was somewhat interesting. Now, if, if it rolls into her being called Dewdrop and that being the gimmick, and then yeah, I'm gonna rightfully shit on it. But at least for one week, WWE staved off a rant that I had conditioned and prepared to go absolutely off on calling a wrestler Dewdrop. So I hope you guys at least understand and appreciate that perspective. Now, the other qualifier was Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross against Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler. Jax told Reginald backstage what happened with her slapping him wasn't on purpose and she would never intentionally hurt him. But she and Baszler did acknowledge that while Baszler wasn't scared of Bliss, Bliss had changed. Bliss got some pretty great new demonic type of music with no references to The Fiend or Flyerfly Funhouse completely gone, which is interesting not only for her character, but for what it means potentially for The Fiend and even extrapolating that further to Bray Wyatt going forward. What's gonna happen with them? Cross then cut a babyface promo saying she's had a spark inside of her heart and debuted a new superhero gimmick with a butterfly logo in bright blue and yellow. I was speechless because it came out of nowhere. But let's pause, let's get to the match. So Cross splashes Jax, Baszler, and Reginald all outside simultaneously. She hesitated to tag Bliss in, but ultimately did. Bliss hit a sunset flip powerbomb on Baszler 
and Cross got the hot tag. Bliss hypnotized Reggie into slapping Jax, but he stopped himself at the last second, and they hugged. Cross then took them out with a dropkick and beat Baszler with La Magistral, which I feel is something I have not seen in years, so I popped for that as the finish. And Cross, the way she was portrayed in this, is very much Hurricane Helms and Mighty Molly-esque. I mean, it worked for both of them, and I do wonder if Cross is going to get a new moniker. Let's not forget Shane Helms is a WWE producer who's backstage, so I assume he's helping or at least being consulted creatively. And look, Cross has the energy and personality, passion, attitude to make it work. She's a happy-go-lucky, seemingly fun-loving person. I could actually see kids getting into this and wanting to be Nikki Cross. And it's a gimmick that Cross did on her indie days before WWE, albeit without the mask. And I gotta say, something in me kind of liked it. Not everything in WWE needs to be made directly for me as an individual, as an adult male who's been watching the product for 30 years. Something can be on TV that is fun and lighthearted and is made for kids. Little Jimmy worked for kids. Hurricane Helms' Mighty Molly worked for kids. The Funkasaurus worked for kids, even though I actually hated the Funkasaurus. I think this is going to work. And it actually gives a little bit more credence to her victories coming the way they did booking-wise a few weeks ago, despite those still being terrible beat-the-clock shenanigans. I have to say that I came away from this entire thing with a positive reaction, and I'm certainly not going to hate on it until I'm given a reason to. I'm positive about this, not only as the gimmick, but as the potential for Nikki Cross. I could see her getting huge pops that may even take her to title matches or championships, at least a tag team championship. The only booking negative besides Baszler losing again, and by the way, I just think we need to get over the idea of her being dominant on Raw like she was in NXT, is that it really made no sense whatsoever why Cross and Bliss would partner and tag team together because there was never a reconciliation. And it was completely forced when they easily could have done Bliss versus Jax and Cross versus Baszler matches to get the same result. But in the end, I was pretty entertained by Nikki Cross here. I thought it was pretty interesting. And we also get Asuka, Naomi, Alexa Bliss, and the new Nikki Cross as the Money in the Bank entrance. And I gotta say, I kinda love it. Asuka's the defending briefcase holder. We all wanna see Naomi and Cross get opportunities. And Bliss, even though the gimmick for the large part of its history hasn't been good, the hypnosis part of it it gets me pretty interested. Like, is she going to hypnotize someone to climb down off the ladder? I am a little concerned that there's going to be seven other women in this match and they all may have to play into Alexa's gimmick in what's a really important match. But as long as they keep her involvement limited, especially in terms of like her powers, then I think it could be okay. Looking at the women's roster on Raw, the only person I'd want in there who isn't in there is Baszler because we have Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke in a tag team feud. And now going over to SmackDown, there's only nine women on the SmackDown roster, three of whom are already champions. Sasha Banks hasn't been around since WrestleMania, Sonya Deville doesn't wrestle, and Mia Yim has not yet been reintroduced. So that leaves Bailey, Carmella, and Liv Morgan, almost with free entries to Money in the Bank. 
Now, they could bring someone up potentially, like a Kaylee Ray, or they could put Natalia or Tamina in, or they could bring in Mia Yim and reintroduce her and allow her to win a fourth spot. But either way, whatever foursome they come up with out of that group is quite good. And all eight women in this match, it's going to be a pretty interesting, solid booking. So one of the reasons I thought Raw was so positively received, at least by me and I think by many of you as well, is people really liked the winners of these qualifying matches, somewhat because it bucked our expectations of WWE booking, what we've got recently. And when you're trying to bring fans back, that's a really, really good thing. Both of these matches could wind up extremely strong with great eight-person fields, and that is, by the way, how it always should be. Good fields and good winners for money in the bank. So that's the main event. But speaking of good things, let's get into our brand new segment from last week, two weeks in a row, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now we only have, I think, four or five segments to talk about here this week on Good, Bad, and Ugly because so much on Raw happened and had to do with Money in the Bank, and it's probably going to be the same with SmackDown next week. But let's start Rhea Ripley being called out by Adam Pierce and Sonya Deville. They told her that what she did at Hell in a Cell, getting intentionally disqualified, was unacceptable. Ripley said they're selectively applying rules because Charlotte Flair does stuff like that all the time and never suffers consequences. That's not exactly true. When Flair does get intentionally disqualified, there's usually a rematch, but I digress. Flair came out and said she appreciated Ripley being strategic, but she'll destroy her. Flair didn't even ask for a rematch, and DeVille just basically said, oh, so you're probably going to ask for a rematch next. Okay, you can have one. This is just absolute garbage booking. Zero point zero. We knew the second we saw that disqualification and that horrendous finish at Hell in a Cell that we would get a rematch. But I held out a shred of hope they would at least add Nikki Cross, maybe give it a stipulation, something. Shouldn't this at least be a no disqualification match to make sure Ripley doesn't have an out? Instead, nope, just a second title match announced inside the first hour of the first show after Hell in a Cell, and the challenger didn't even need to ask for the rematch. So now, what the hell are you going to do with these women over the next three weeks? They only got five minutes on TV time as it was, whereas if you compare that to the men's storyline, they got a a shitload more. But that's not what makes the storyline bad. What makes the storyline bad is the story. Literally, the only way this can be saved is to have Ripley beat Flair squeaky clean with the riptide decisively in the center of the ring at Money in the Bank. If that happens, it'll be a good resolution. But this is not good. This wasn't even bad. This was the lone segment this week that was legitimately ugly. Over on SmackDown, we had the battle for the crown, Shinsuke Nakamura against King Corbin. Like me, Pat McAfee marked the F out for Rick Boogs, who absolutely shredded on Nakamura's entrance. They had the crown set up on a stand with a throne on the stage. Nakamura took out Corbin early with a sliding powerbomb and then celebrated as Boogs did a guitar solo. There were a bunch of near falls after signature moves and Corbin countered Kinshasa with a huge clothesline. Nakamura hit a bunch of knees 
and Kinshasa for the win to own Corbin's crown officially. Boogs crowned him, and then Corbin actually cried in the ring, which was pretty funny. I gotta say, I was pleasantly surprised Shinsuke won, given how he dominated this really weird feud with all those really short matches. I think I said they had four matches that combined for 12 minutes. This one got 11 minutes on its own, which is a good thing. None of those other ones, though, should have been that short, as we discussed previously. Now, I'm gonna be interested to see what happens Friday, because if this is how Corbin gets his long overdue gimmick change, more power to him. Whether he just simply goes back to Baron Corbin or does something different, it's going to be good him no longer, we hope, being King Corbin. But as I've said throughout this entire feud, really what they should have done is a King of the Ring tournament and done it naturally. Maybe they both end up in the finals, Nakamura beats Corbin, gets the crown, and that's it. I did wish the match got a little bit more than the 11 minutes it got. It was the end of a feud with two really good wrestlers. It was a go-home show for a pay-per-view. There wasn't that much more on it. So I just wish there was more to it. There does seem to be a lot of inklings here for King of the Ring. Not only did they bring out the throne here, you had Xavier Woods mention it on Raw. It's been bandied about by superstars on Twitter recently. I kind of think they're going to do it. I just don't know when they're going to schedule it, given we have Money in the Bank coming up and SummerSlam immediately after that. I've always believed, I said this, that if WWE does the draft after SummerSlam with those fresh rosters, that gives you a good three months about to build for Survivor Series. And the idea of doing all the King of the Ring qualifying matches in November with the King of the Ring semifinals and or finals on Survivor Series is a really good idea. So my hope is that they let the rosters reset before they do King of the Ring, but I still hope they do it before the year is out. For a final grade, this was indeed good. It could have been great, but it wasn't. It was just good. Angelo Dawkins and Otis were scheduled for a match, but Alpha Academy baited Dawkins into an attack pre-match and debuted a new combination, like discus, clothesline, lariat, German suplex type of finisher, which was pretty cool. The match never got started. I thought it was fantastic though. Otis has been reborn and rejuvenated as a heel. He killed Dawkins. Gable is doing great in his role. I like the way Otis has kind of transitioned here. He's way more believable as dominant than face Otis was. And Alpha Academy, I gotta say, I know you guys loved Heavy Machinery. It is far better than Heavy Machinery ever was. They've cleansed Otis somehow of the horrible Money in the Bank booking, and this is going really well. I would love to see Alpha Academy eventually beat the Mysterios for the SmackDown tag team titles. So this, as you can tell, is good. And lastly here, they repeated on Raw the identical women's tag team title segment from last week with Natalia and Tamina being interviewed while Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke were training. They basically just traded places. They didn't even change the scenery or the scenario. Rose and Brooke kicked the champions off the ring apron when they tried to enter, and that was it. Lazy booking, I know that having the tag teams have singles matches in the ring is trite. We get it all the time, but I really wouldn't hate it if they did that. You know, have them do something different. Have them interact differently backstage. Don't just do the same thing over and over again. This was not good. It wasn't ugly, but it was bad. Now that's the segment. It was short for this week, like I said, because we covered everything else in the main event. But I do have a couple other things to talk about, news items from this week in WWE. First, 
If you have not watched Talking Smack from last Friday, you absolutely must watch it for Sami Zayn's promo. I was going to cut a clip and add it to the show. I didn't know I wouldn't have Chris. I thought the show would go long if I cut it. So I didn't. Even though Hell in a Cell already happened, please go back, watch Talking Smack, check out Sami Zayn's promo. He absolutely tears the house down. And I wish he did this live on SmackDown. It was fantastic. It also, speaking of Sami Zayn, let's talk about Kevin Owens. It looks like Kevin Owens will be taking some time off from WWE. He wrote on Twitter, quote, I fought like hell. Now I need a little break. I'll be back soon. Thank you guys. Now, I'm not sure if this lends credence to my thought during our instant analysis that he legitimately injured his shoulder at the start of that match. But either way, he's been busting his ass for the better part of a year. So there's no one more deserving of this time off. Don't forget, he went through that hellacious feud with Roman Reigns before this. So this guy's been banged up. I can't wait to see him back. I hope when he does come back, it's refreshed a little bit. And honestly, if they want to keep him out, if they do this draft after SummerSlam, I want him to be on SummerSlam. Don't get me wrong. I love Kevin Owens. But if he took two months off and they brought him back in that draft on Raw, that'd be a good booking. I think he does need to, again, separate from Sami Zayn. Obviously, the injury will, will create a natural separation. But them being on different shows is a good thing, even though I know they're close friends and I'm sure they like being on the same show. I kind of like when they're separated. I think it's better. And then lastly here, Karrion Cross and Bronson Reed, the NXT champion and NXT North American champion, both taped matches for main event on Monday and were backstage at both SmackDown and Raw over the last week, which is quite interesting. Now, I know this can be construed as a spoiler, but I'm not going to care about spoilers for main event. And really, it's an interesting topic for us to discuss. I would never tell you if a report was out there about one of them debuting on Raw or SmackDown or something. But in this context, I think it's worth briefly discussing. Reed, for me, needs more time in NXT. He needs more seasoning. He's not come anywhere close to reaching his ceiling there. Whereas Cross, he could move up to Raw from NXT tomorrow and feel right at home. The idea of taking two newly crowned champions from NXT right as the brand seems to be finding new footing and kind of revitalizing itself is a bad one. But if they want to take one individual, carrying Cross is it. So we're going to see how this all kind of works out. But that's the breakdown as of right now. And lastly here, before we get out, I did get an opportunity to watch two of the A&E biographies that we have not yet discussed on the show. The first was Booker T. So I'll just, and the other one was Shawn Michaels. I'll just give some quick breakdowns from these. I hope to watch a couple of these each week. I still have all of the Dark Side of the Ring documentaries to watch. So there's a lot to talk about that I need to catch up on. But as far as Booker T, the Shaft intro was fantastic. And it was, as far as I'm concerned, the best biography yet up until that point. Diving into someone's background, they went deep with Booker T. It was exceptionally important because it really gave you the basis for his entire story. I also appreciated how much time they spent on Harlem Heat. I wish they had spent a little bit more time on him as world champion, but they won me back by airing the Undertaker Spinaroony segment. That was really funny. And it was just a really uplifting doc where if you didn't like Booker T already, hopefully now you have even more respect for him. I enjoyed it immensely. And then the Shawn Michaels doc. There was a great story about Shawn and Marty Jannetty being hired for like one day before causing problems, which served as a paradigm, by the way, by the way for all of his screw-ups. Like it was just the first one. It set the stage 
for everything that would happen with Shawn Michaels to come. It was also really cool to see footage of that title change with the Hart Foundation. That's something I'd heard about before, but I can't ever recall seeing clips or footage of it. So I thought that was great. And I appreciated how much time they spent with the Rockers and how much credit he gave Marty, despite Shawn being a Hall of Fame wrestler as a single without even considering his tag team career. It also says something that Ric Flair went out of his way to call Shawn Michaels the greatest in-ring performer of all time. And I do think that's an interesting distinction. Wrestler versus in-ring performer. Shawn very well may be the best in-ring performer of all time, although Ric Flair himself, there's a case to be made for him, no question about it. And then you get into the wrestler conversation. And now you're talking about different people. You're throwing in Kenny Omega and you know, you're going to a different level. But in terms of in-ring performance, all-around type of guy, Sean is up there. And I know a lot of people discredit him, but he deserves more credit than I think he gets in totality. So that is really it from today's show, breaking down the fallout from Hell in a Cell, the early booking for Money in the Bank, bringing back our good, bad, and ugly segment. Again, I would love some feedback on that. Folks, please let me know if you like it or if you kind of want us to just go back to breaking down everything else from WWE and not really giving it any special treatment. That's for you guys to tell me. You can tell me by following us on Twitter at GettingOverCast, sending in tweets. If you don't want them to be public, send in DMs. We'll get your questions. We'll get your thoughts. We will read them on the show as we always do, along with all the other benefits, as I've said, of following us on Twitter, including knowing the second that new episodes drop. You can find all that out by following us at Getting Overcast. And we're almost out of here, folks, but I cannot forget to remind you one more time what this show is all about. It's all about the A little bit of a false start there on the sound drop, but this show is all about the five. So that means heading on over to Apple Podcasts as soon as we are done here, leaving us a five-star rating and a review. Let people know how much you love the show. Help us bump up our Apple podcast credentials, our rankings. We want to be in the top 25 wrestling podcasts in North America, and we are on our way there thanks to your help. We have seen a lot of reviews come in recently from me pushing. I appreciate all of you guys doing that, but we could still use a bunch more. We are nowhere near the number that we need at this point. So that's it. Uh, Now, normally, this is where I just end the show. I say goodbye, give you three final words, but you know what? I'm on my own today. No vintage Chris Vanini. And you know what? We haven't even reached an hour of runtime here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So let's go old school and allow someone else to say goodbye first. And I thank you all for listening. So I will leave you now with just three final words. Bye for now.